0: This week, the Comics Guys explain Sandman, Part 1. Yes, thank you, Ben. Uh, This time, uh, we will be going over uh, Sandman and Sandmen. So, Darren, uh, where should we start with going over to understand Sandman?
1: So, we're going to do both the TV show and the comic here. Uh, I know this has explained this comics, right. guys, but we are kind of like making, we're, you know, the, the, the reason the topic came up is because the show is such a big hit on Netflix and so many people are interacting with it for the first time. That's cool. If you've read the comic, then... You know, we're also going to go over some of the stuff in the comic that uh, is not kind of like immediately obvious, right? That, uh, you know, there's some there's a lot of like uh, continuity stuff in the comic book, uh, most of which did not make it to the TV show. Uh, and we're going to kind of like go over that, too, in case you like read Sandman years ago and didn't get everything that was going on then. So absolutely.
0: The uh, the odds of Martian Manhunter showing up in the TV show were always pretty slow.
1: We're pretty low to start out with. Exactly. Yeah. So DC has had a character called Sandman since all the way back in 1939. Um, Sandman, uh, the, a character called Sandman, who is uh, obviously has very little to do with the current one, uh, first appears in World's Fair Comics number one, uh, which is the series that eventually would change its name to World's Finest Comics. It was a comic book that was published uh, at as a kind of like a promotional uh, comic uh, for the New York World's Fair. Um, and put on uh, had about a dozen issues or so over two years um, that were put out and distributed uh, on site at the World's Fair. Um, oh, and was awesome. a- I
0: didn't know that the World's Fair always seems like it's a thing that we just really don't have any equivalent to uh, today. Like it's uh, right. you know it such a like uh, mecca of culture. That, it's
1: uh, it's like it's like if there was a pop a pop up Epcot Center. Or something, right? Yeah. Like I mean the idea of, of just like a, a thing that just like kind of like appeared uh you know and was there in you know like running all you know spring to fall basically for two years and then just completely shut up and went away, right? You know, so um yeah but yeah we haven't had one in the US since the sixties so it's a you know it's kind of like a forgotten concept. So
0: yeah, shame. Well oh, sorry, you're gone.
1: No, not at all. Um, so that first appearance of uh, the, the original Sandman um, was done by Gardner Fox, uh, who was you know, kind of like the main lead writer for the national uh, characters in the 30s and 40s, uh, with Bert Christman uh, doing the art. And this character is um, in the manner of the shadow right like he's another one of those uh, characters who kind of like owes a great deal to the shadow um he's post batman he's post crimson avenger um, but like them, he is—he's a you know uh, a, a rich uh, you know like playboy who puts on a costume and fights crime. He doesn't have any powers or anything. He's a detective. Um, the main shtick that kind of like separated him from the other characters who were wearing you know business suits and opera cloaks basically to uh, you know go out and fight crime at night was that he specialized in uh, knockout gas. Right. Like he had a he had a gun that fired, you know, like sleeping gas clouds of it, basically, to put people to sleep. And so he wore all the time as part of his costume, a gas mask. And that kind of like made him a very kind of like visually distinctive character that he was wearing like a gas mask and then, you know, like a slouch hat, basically. And if you take a look at the uh, the Gaiman Sandman's helmet, uh you can see that the design of the of his helm basically is suggestive of a gas mask right like it's got the whole kind of like full structure and then right where the nose and mouth are it's got that kind of like add-on piece uh that like hangs down below it and so it looks kind of like uh you know it like it could be a gas mask and it is definitely a reference to the original character Sandman was never terribly popular he was a you know member of the justice society uh, but was definitely a second or third tier character. And in uh, 1943, there was an effort made to kind of like uh, you know change him around and update him. And the first people who did that were um, Mort Weisinger and Paul Norris, who uh, cut him out of his suit and his gas mask and everything, and put him in a skin tight costume, um, and gave him a teen sidekick. Uh, Sandy, the Golden Boy. So it was the Sandman and Sandy. Um, that didn't, you know, that that was an improvement. It helped. It made him kind of like more visually interesting, and uh, you know, like the color scheme was more interesting. But it wasn't until uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby took over the strip for a bit that, like, it really became kind of like visually much more interesting, um, and the storytelling kind of like changed. It's uh, Simon and Kirby gave him. Kind of a dream motif, right? The idea of like, uh, you know, the Sandman is the one who comes and puts you to sleep, right? Kind of thing. Uh, This version of Sandman, their version of Sandman, would frequently begin the story by having a prophetic dream. That would, uh, you know, kind of like inform the plot of the of the issue as it went along. Um, and it was never really kind of explained whether this was a superpower that, uh, you know, that Sandman had, or whether, you know, who was who was sending these dreams to him that would help him, you know, like solve the crime. Um, and of course, Sandman in the modern day retconned all of that to suggest that he was he, you know, because he was using the name and had this kind of spiritual connection. To Morpheus while he was being imprisoned, uh, that it, the dreams were being sent to him by Morpheus. And so that kind of like tied in the 40s character um into the uh you know in, into the story of Sandman. Um Sandman uh was not uh uh one of the characters, one of the Justice Society characters that DC uh, revamped and brought back in the 60s, right? Like Flash and Green Lantern, Hawkman, and Adam all got like new characters, new lives in the 60s. But several of like the the less popular Justice Society characters kind of like stayed on Earth, too, and there was no modern version of them. So Sandman was kind of like Dr. Midnight or Hourman Man or one of those guys who just didn't get a revamp, basically. Um, there was a story. In a Justice League comic in 1974, Justice League number 113, uh, by uh, Len Wein and uh, Dick Dillon, that kind of told the story of Sandman and kind of like you know gave him a new uh, adventure. By that point in the 70s, the when you saw Sandman in the uh, hanging out with the Justice Society and all of the team ups that happened with the Justice League, uh, Sandman had gone back to his suit and gas mask outfit um, and was not wearing the, you know, skin tight costume. So after the war, uh, Sandman and Sandy supposedly uh, had invented a new device, a weapon called the silicoid gun. And it's not really clear in the comic what exactly the silicoid gun was supposed to be doing, but it was some sort of a weapon that Sandman was going to use in fighting crime. And. It doesn't work it blows up in their faces basically uh in their their first real test of it and the explosion catches sandy in it and transforms him into a hideous sand monster basically he now stands about like 12 feet tall and he's made out of sand and he like you know is like this kind of like maddened creature basically that sandman has to you know capture um and then uh Sandman kind of like puts him in a cage in his headquarters and spends the next 20 years apparently trying to figure out how to change him back. So anyway, obviously this is a terrible thing for, you know, Sandman, right? This is an awful event. Um, and kind of like an awful thing for Sandman to like not tell anybody, right? Like whatever happened to his, you know, teen sidekick. Didn't he have like a family or anything that, you know, like that, that we had to uh uh inform about this? But no, he just goes, you know, like about his business, trying to come up with a cure for Sandy for 20 years. And of course, he's so saddened uh by the fact that his teen sidekick is no longer you know like around to help him basically that he gives up the costume that they wore together and goes back to wearing his old costume um in that justice league story uh sandy breaks out of his cage basically and the justice league and the justice society have to team up to you know capture him um and it turns out that he has in fact actually Uh, you know, while he was, you know, kind of like temporarily driven crazy by the transformation, he's actually been perfectly sane and just unable to communicate for like quite some time, um, which just makes Sandman feel even sadder that he's, you know, like held him in prison, basically. Um, And so with the help of the Justice League, uh, they are able to not only stop like a series of horrible earthquakes from happening, but uh, are able to, um, you know, like... uh, uh, Brings Sandy back to being at least a person, right? Like, that's the at the end of the issue, they haven't uh, dealt with his transformation yet, but his personality has come back and now he can talk and stuff. So, um, that character then basically gets ignored for another 20, 25 years. Sandy doesn't really appear in much of anything as a character um, until the Justice Society series by Goyer and Jeff Johns and some by Jim Robinson um, in 1999 make creates the new Justice Society and this new Justice Society includes Sandy, uh Sandman being long dead at this point, but Sandy is of course not aged during the time that he was uh you know like trapped in monster form basically and he now has the ability to kind of like control that transformation so he can be like an ordinary adult you know person and then transform himself into a sand being much like the Marvel version of Sandman. Um, right. And he becomes part of the Justice Society for a while. Uh, He calls himself just Sand at that point, which is a terrible name. Um, And in uh, JSA Volume 3, they finally kind of like uh, decide and uh, accept that he's also going to call himself Sandman. So that character's around for, you know, like several years basically. And then Flashpoint happens, and all of that stuff is undone. Um, And so in the current DC uh, continuity, um, both Sandman and Sandy were members of the Justice Society. Uh, that happened back in, you know, the Justice Society that happened back in the 1940s. But we have seen very little of them, um, and apparently none of the post-war stories or anything that uh, that involved Sandy uh, have taken place. They are no longer part of continuity, um, and we have not really seen much of the Justice Society since they've been brought back into continuity. You know, knock knock DC. If you ever are looking for somebody to actually write that, you have my email. So, uh, <laughs> drop me line. Uh, yeah, yeah. That would be great. That a...
0: shows up briefly when, um, I think it was just before Flashpoint. He shows up during the. um, They do a JSA Kingdom Come crossover where, oh yeah, like yep. Magog from the Kingdom Come universe shows up.
1: That's the volume three run, basically. Is the right. uh, where he is now being called Sandman and everything for it. He is part of that team in the JSA. Yes.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, is is that still the same run from the ninety nine one? Like, is that still the same? Uh, it's the same series. Time.
1: It's it's different writers, but yes, absolutely.
0: Right, okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It just felt like a uh, felt like a big time gap in there to be the same um, the same run, but I guess DC changes them a little bit less frequently than Marvel does.
1: That makes sense. So anyway, that character, you know, like that's that's the state of the original Sandman character. So now in the '70s, like we said, all of the uh, you know many of the Justice Society characters have gotten transformed or updated or or something like that. Jack Kirby comes to DC. And during his, you know, five-year contract that he's with DC from seventy to seventy-five, he works on a bunch of different uh, characters. He throws out uh, a number of different characters, many of which did not get much time to, uh, you know, kind of like establish themselves. And one of them was Jack, noting that uh, you know DC still had the rights to the name of the character Sandman, and so he creates a new character called Sandman uh, with uh, Joe Simon who basically comes out of retirement to to come work on a single story with Jack because they had just been talking and it was a cool idea. And so they create this character uh, who is a superhero living in the dimension of dreams. Uh, He only gets a total of six issues. um, And Simon only writes the first one. Uh, And then Michael Fleischer comes along. He's interested enough in the character concept that he basically writes five more scripts uh for dc and becomes the new lead writer on it issues number two and three kirby doesn't even work on the art is by ernie chan and then kirby comes back to do the art in issues four through six but the premise of the character is garrett sanford brilliant scientist uh, is studying dreams and accidentally finds himself transported and trapped in the dimension of dreams, the world of dreams, basically. So he can move around in different people's dreams um, and you know, kind of like uh, exist in this world all the time. In fact, he can only come out of this universe, out of this dimension uh, for an hour at a time into our world, um, which will become kind of like a big plot point for the character later. Um, and so he kind of sets himself up as a superhero in this world. We don't learn even like a real name or anything for him until quite late in the series, um, in which he is basically battling evil beings that also live in the dimension of dreams that are like tormenting people in their dreams and giving them nightmares and stuff. And in the very first issue in Sandman Volume Two, Number One, uh, is uh, the the kid, the child who is the victim of the uh, evil villain, is named Jed Walker. And that's the character that Neil Gaiman will borrow, basically, to do the entire kind of like uh, Walker Dream Vortex storyline that takes up the second half of the first season of the show, Um, that Jed himself actually was a character uh, who first appeared back in the 70s as a character in Sandman. And that kid will actually appear several times over the course of those six issues. Um, And so, like, filling out his family and his story and everything is, uh, you know, part of what Gaiman is doing with that.
0: It's kind of surprising that a comic that had, you know, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon on it was given so little, like, runway. I guess even if Simon was only on the first issue, I I would figure that they would—was it promoted a lot, or uh, was it It kind of
1: I mean, it it was relatively late in Kirby's stay there, and already DC had been disappointed. Right, like the things that Kirby was doing were were critically acclaimed, but were not selling well. Right, so like all of these characters that he had created, like the demon and Commandy and all of this other stuff that uh, that 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 we love now, um, and that eventually became much more popular characters, were just dying on the vine in the uh you know in the actual marketplace of 1973 1974. So Sandman was just kind of like another one of those that just didn't sell very well.
0: That. That makes a lot of sense. I, you know, just uh, I guess it's uh, hindsight, but I guess you know we, right. we think today that entire is kind of period hindsight.
1: is so kind of like revered by fans today, and you know, like critics look back at it today and say, "Oh, this was like such amazing stuff." But at the time, it was you know, it, it was not what was selling, you know, in the marketplace kind yes, of yeah. thing, right? So I mean, even New Gods was not that big of a seller. Right? right, you know all of, all the fourth World Series, the New Gods, and uh, Mister Miracle, and all of that stuff. Like those were, you know, the, DC was very disappointed by the 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 market effect that Kirby had. Right, like creatively, they thought he was wonderful, but it was clear that like what he was doing was not what the audience wanted at that point. So,
0: yeah. I guess it's, uh, you know, I guess we can talk about it a little bit now. Why do you think that that was at that time? Like what, what do you think has changed about the, the market or the, what people are looking for?
1: Part of it was, he was Maybe just ahead was... of his time, right? Like had, yeah. at that point he had kind of like gotten ahead of where the marketplace was. And so his stuff sense. is so kind of, you know, like art heavy, his storytelling style, was just kind of like out of step with what was, you know, with, with with what was popular at the time, right? Like what was popular at the time was, uh, you know, like the earliest X Men, right? right? And uh, you know, Fantastic Four and the Avengers and Spider Man and that kind of thing, right? Like, and it's, it's a very different storytelling style than these big kind of like cinematic cosmic epics and that sort of thing that 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 Kirby was telling, and yeah. his very kind of like decompressed use of uh, dialogue. Like, you know, so many of these uh, comics are just like these massive, gorgeous, you know, sometimes multi-page splash page, you know, panels or whatever, um, at a time when like the six to nine panel page was what was common in comics. Right. right? So people would look at this and going like, why, you know, I've only got, I I just went through eight pages of the comic and I only got six pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, I should have had 30 pictures or or, or 50 pictures if I was reading Spider-Man. Right? right, like, why is it? Why is this so like weirdly decompressed? You know, and it took a while for the audience to kind of like catch on, and I think appreciate what it was he was doing. And even so, even today, uh, you know, that that stuff is still it, it's. Or critically acclaimed than it is, like you know, necessarily tremendously popular in the marketplace. Obviously, right. everybody got everybody figured out why New Gods was cool. Everybody figured out the Dark Side is awesome, et cetera. But I mean, how often do you actually see, uh, you know, some of those other creations like, uh, like Omak or Sandman or, uh, you know, even your Commandy or something, um, you know, like even referenced in a modern comic today. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. Uh, they show up in like. Uh cartoons and one-offs a lot of times but that's like right. well most... because
1: because creators love them yeah right? like if you're a big enough comic book nerd to have actually gone into the comic book business of drawing or writing comics then presumably you know kirby's one of the touchstones for that right mm-hmm. um but that doesn't necessarily need sales right like if all you're doing is selling to you know like people who care that much about comics there's just not that many of them right so anyway he's doing this series it goes six issues and then gets canceled um and they're very kind of like silly stories, right? They're very they're definitely Kirby writing for kids. Um at one point, Sandman actually like teams up with and saves Santa Claus. right? So I mean, like that's kind of the level that like a lot of these stories are at. Um, but they also have this really kind of like dark tone to them, a dark undertone to them that comes from, I think mostly from Fleischer um and his scripts. Issue number six, which is another Jed story. Uh, Jed's grandfather has died and Jed now goes to live with his aunt and uncle, and it is very strongly suggested, despite the fact that this is a story for kids, that his aunt and uncle are kind of abusive, right? And like he's living in a very kind of like sad and dark situation, and that's very much what Neil Gaiman kind of like hooks into to tell the horrible story of Jed's abuse in Doll's House. Uh, you know, like later on, to kind of you know, like he's he's getting that from those kind of like hints in those last couple of uh, of Fleischer scripts, basically that suggest that Jed has a very sad, you know, like day life, basically. And it's only in dreams that he gets to kind of like escape and be happy, right? So So that character gets cancelled. Nobody really seems any particular interest to bring him back. Um, He appears uh, in a Justice League annual a few years later, uh, in which he teams up with the Justice League to battle Dr. Destiny. A villain who has been established to be, you know, to have control and power over dreams, basically. And uh, so he helps the Justice League defeat that guy. And it's the first time that Sandman and Dr. Destiny uh, kind of like interact. Obviously, we'll talk a great deal more about Dr. Destiny later on in this uh in, in, in this this series. Um, he teams up with Wonder Woman once, and then the last appearance of Garrett Sanford as a character is in Infinity Incorporated, issue number 50. And we're going to talk about that later, but it's basically in the, in the stories we learn at that point that Garrett Sanford himself was so depressed about uh, being trapped in the world of dreams and that sort of thing and being unable to like interact with the world that he came from that he committed suicide. Um, which is once again
0: that's a, a pretty brutal
1: fairly dark ending for you know like for for the story. I mean, obviously it leads into more stuff that once again we will talk about later. Uh, but that is you know kind of like officially the end of that character as Sandman. Um, when you see Jed in the TV show dressed up as a superhero, that's the costume that he's wearing. Right is the original, the Garrett Sanford Sandman costume is the outfit that he is wearing. And you can tell it looks very kind of like childish and simple and, uh, you know, like really bright primary colors with a domino mask on his face and everything, you know. Um, he, he looks like a kid's idea of a superhero, right? Right. The, the other thing to reference in it is uh, the, the series has, uh, uh, Sandman has two sidekicks in the comic who are called Brute and Glob. And Brute is a big giant, uh, you know, kind of like monster. And Glob is a little tiny monster who is basically just like a a a blob of flesh with like arms and legs coming out of it, and like a big mouth and eyes on the front, right? Kind of thing. Um, and they support and help Sandman in his stories. They will, of course, come back in the Sandman series and be kind of like important. In the TV show, Brute and Glob are replaced by Galt. Um, who is a completely different character that they are trying to use to tell you know to to underline a different part of the story but basically the role of Galt um, in the TV show is played by Brut and Glob in the comics Marvel will uh, also have a Sandman character um, at this point and he's one that uh, is probably at this point is better known than either of the DC versions of him. And we just want to kind of like establish that this is a completely unrelated character because that's a Marvel character. Um, He is a supervillain whose real name is Flint Marco. He first appears in Amazing Spider-Man number four all the way back in September, 1963. Um, He's a member of the Frightful Four. So he's also kind of like a Fantastic Four bad guy. Um, He's played by Thomas Hayden Church in Spider-Man three. And then again in No Way Home. Um, because he's a villain, of course, uh, he doesn't get a solo comic, right? So there are no Marvel comics called Sandman. So there is no kind of like question of, um, you know, like trademark and that sort of thing that needs to be, um, you know, like hashed out on the level of, for example, Captain Marvel or something, disputed between the two car- the the two companies. Um, uh, Marvel cannot and has no particular interest in creating a Sandman comic, basically about their villain character.
0: So I thought it was really weird in uh, No Way Home. I don't. Th- this is a little bit of, little bit of a non sequitur, but I don't think any of us are... I don't think we'll get another chance to talk about it. They never <laughs> had him uh, come out of his uh, sand form. Like, almost like the actor wasn't really there or something.
1: Right. That may be true, or they may have just been concerned that, you know, like, 20 years later, he didn't really, like, look so much like the character anymore. Oh, they needed okay. to kind of, like, CGI him, you know, like, all the time, basically.
0: Fair. I didn't think about that. I just thought it was weird because, like, they they uh, they CGI'd Alfred Molina and uh, right, uh, right, and
1: and Molina looks great, right? Like yeah. in the the CGI version of him looks fabulous. If you if you see what he actually looks like today, and it's like, wow, you they they really shaped you up for the movie, didn't they? You
0: know? yeah. yeah, absolutely. They they did a lot of work, um, and they did a little bit to um to uh Osborn as well. Yeah, so. I just thought that was kind of an interesting like difference in how they uh, handled the characters,
1: right? And the you know like the state of the art of CGI, I think, is so much you know improved basically that like if you look at the two the the two movies, uh, the character just looks so much better in No Way Home. Um, oh yeah, you know there, there's no the the, clunk, the some of the clunky animation in Spider Man Three is just not uh, does not really work. So,
0: oh yeah, absolutely. Spider Man Three is kind of a. I remember really liking it as a kid and at this point it's a very it's a kind of like clunky looking movie with a weird finish and
1: yeah. So anyway that's the Sandman as a character. Those are the other characters who have had the name Sandman before we meet Morpheus in number one. Um, Other characters uh, the next set of characters that we want to talk about in it are the characters who are kind of like his early supporting cast. Right, the first few characters that are introduced uh, to so su- to support him are um, all themselves uh, characters who had appeared in DC Comics, but not really as characters. Right, Cain and Abel, Lucian, Eve, and Destiny. All five of those characters uh, that would you know are obviously tremendously important to the Sandman story had themselves been hosts. Of DC horror anthologies, non superhero comics, mm-hmm. horror comics basically, where they would be basically like the crypt keeper in you know like EC comics or something, where that was like the character who would come out and introduce the story, right, and be the character who kind of like appeared between stories with a little bit of you know like a talking directly to the reader and you know uh, kind of like giving them a, a you know like a setup basically before the next story started. Right, so all five of those characters were basically the hosts of DC anthology stories. The first one who appears is Kane himself, um, who appeared in House of Mystery number four, and became the house the host of House of Mystery going forward. That's in July of 1968. Um, it's by uh, Haney and Orlando, and the appearance of Kane in the comic is modeled on physically. He looks very much like Len Wein. Uh, who was, you know, one of the editors, basically, and, you know, like a, a relatively, like, young uh, version of Len Wein was, uh, was, you know, was working in the DC offices. And they basically drew Kane to look kind of like a, a cartoonish version of Len. Um, and then when Abel was appeared in, like, a year later, uh, first in DC Special number 4 and then House of Secrets number 81, he became the host of House of Secrets. Um, and Abel is based on Mark Hannerfield who was the writer of House of Secrets, or one of the house, writers of House of Secrets with Orlando doing the art. Um, so those two have been, you know, were appearing in comics in DC on a regular monthly basis starting in the late 60s. Gregory uh, the Gargoyle first appears in House of Mystery as well. He's, a, he's Kane's pet, not Abel's basically in the, in the original comics. Um, and so the two were so popular And those anthology titles were so popular in the 70s, especially once we got past the comics code, once the comics code kind of like relaxed on what monsters and everything can do. If you want to go back to our comics code episode, um, DC had an explosion of horror titles, of horror anthology titles, and like they all needed hosts, right? So, uh, in when the next one was called The Witching Hour. And that was hosted by Eve, as this you know this this ancient old crone basically who would you know was basically a witch who would like tell you these stories. Um, she has not appeared yet in the TV show, but she is a fairly important character in the in the comic, and you we're pretty sure she'll show up next season if there is a next season of Sandman. Um, and then Destiny, who is one of the Endless in the cosmology that Gaiman has created around this, uh, was himself a host of weird mystery tales. Starting in 1972. Um, and he would like read from his book, basically, you know, like stories of various ghost stories and monster stories and whatever. Um, he was then uh, kind of like switched off with a new character who was Lucian, the librarian, who started in with Weird Mystery Tales in 1975 and also had a comic on his own called Tales of Ghost Castle which uh, only actually came out for three issues in, uh, in 1975, between May and October, basically. Um, and Lucian was, once again, another host character who was always kind of walking around in his library and taking down books and reading you horror stories out of the books, right? like that was part of his premise. Um, also regularly appearing in The Witching Hour were the three witches, uh, Mordred, Mildred, and Cynthia, who in both the comic and the TV show are kind of like conflated with the Fates, right? The three who are one, the one who is three, etc. The appearance of the three Fates in the comic definitely, and less so, but also in the TV show, is based on the three witches who had appeared in *The Witching Hour*. So, Gaiman is basically suggesting that these are all basically the same character, uh, you know, the same uh, the same set of characters, basically. Um, And the last one of the hosts who uh, shows up basically is called the Mad Mod Witch, who is one of the hosts of The Unexpected, uh, starting in 1968. And uh, the Mad Mod Witch, who was very interested in, uh, you know, kind of like mod uh, uh, fashion and that sort of thing, uh, becomes the fashion thing in the Sandman comics um and uh, is referred to many times before we actually see her uh, but that's all once again based on these same characters now most of these characters were you know they had kind of like faded away the 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 um the the horror rush basically of the late 60s into the early 70s had kind of faded away by the late 70s uh, to early 80s and by the time that Alan Moore Came to DC, the only two that were left were House of Mystery and House of Secrets. The others had all been canceled due to kind of like poor sales. DC no longer needed to have five or six different horror titles they could get by. There was enough demand basically to keep two of them afloat. That's and cool. so Cain and Abel were the two known hosts. Um, they had not appeared in DC continuity until uh, Alan Moore. Made them part of DC continuity in his horror title, *Doing Swamp Thing*, and he basically kind of like introduced the two of them to the DC universe um, and the existence of the House of Mystery and the House of Secrets as actual places. That was all part of Alan Moore's kind of like gag, referring back to, uh, you know, the horror comics that he had grown up with with DC, right? And his his love for those stories. So he brought those characters over to the DC universe. Um, Gaiman obviously like you know when he came on board kind of like carried forward a lot of alan moore's jokes because he is first of all an enormous alan moore fan himself and moore had kind of been neil gaiman's mentor uh coming up in comics right um gaiman for example uh moore had chosen him specifically after reading some of his early indie titles to be the next writer on miracle man um, when he was, you know, like when, when he was leaving England, basically to come to DC, he handpicked Gaiman to replace him, uh, on that series. And then when Gaiman came to America, uh, um, one of the first things, one of his first jobs was working as Moore's research assistant while Moore was doing Watchmen for DC. And so... During all of this stretch, before Moore kind of like reaches his point where he's you know uh, uh, can no longer get along with DC and quits working with DC, um, Gaiman has become, you know, as working as Moore's research assistant, basically has has met a bunch of people at DC, and um, has met Karen Berger, uh, who will become the first editor of Vertigo. Um, And Karen Berger is very interested in kind of like bringing in new writers, especially once more gets kind of honked off and they they need to replace him. Um, She is DC's contact in London and is one of the people who is bringing British creators um, to come to work for DC. And so she gets Neil Gaiman to make some pitches to her. As you know, Moore's former research guy and somebody who had been writing, you know, Miracle Man, basically, and a, a few other things in in England, and uh, famously, Gaiman has written about this. wrote wrote an essay uh, uh, about the time his time coming to DC, and when he was first interviewed by Aaron Berger and a couple of other DC editors, he made his initial pitch for what exa- what was going to turn out to be uh, Black Orchid which was the first DC story that uh, Gaiman had done for, Mar- for DC. And his accent was so thick at that point that none of the editors could understand him when he said Black Orchid. They didn't know who that character was. And uh, you know, at, at one point, Karen uh, thought that he was saying Black Hawk Kid and could not remember the existence of a kid in the Blackhawk comics and was trying to like this, is there even a character called Blackhawk Kid? I don't know who we're talking about. Um, and eventually after about 20 minutes, it took for them to figure out what character the Gaiman was actually referring to with his accent. He had literally had to write it down <laughs> so they could see it spelled out and be like, oh, Black Orchid got it. And That's pretty funny. from that point, they could actually like go ahead. And they wound up buying that series and that was Gaiman's actual first work uh, for DC, so. There's a lot of more connections that we'll kind of, you know, we'll see throughout this uh, series because Gaben continues to just kind of like pay tribute to, you know, like the guy who was basically his mentor for most of that series. So, Very cool. Uh, the last character we're going to talk about this time um, is uh, Dr. Destiny, is John D. Uh, I promise we'll
0: if... get to Morpheus in the second episode, everyone.
1: We will. Yes, exactly. We'll, talk we'll
0: get there. I, pr- I promise.
1: Uh but John D is uh the villain, basically in the if in the TV show, he's the guy, you know, who has the he's got the ruby, right? Like, and then he takes it to the diner uh and has that horrifying episode basically with uh you know like a, where he's where he's controlling everyone in the diner with the ruby. Um and that is in the comics, that is an actual known costume supervillain who had been around well before Sandman uh was was up and about, um, called Dr. Destiny. And Dr. Destiny first shows up all the way back in Justice League number five. It's way back in the early 60s. um, And he is a supervillain. The first time we meet him, his shtick is only that he's a mad scientist. We don't really know. like The the dream motif hasn't really gotten attached to him yet. And the main thing he does in his first story is um, invent an anti-gravity device that allows him to fly. And in doing this, he basically uh, disguises himself as Green Lantern and replaces Green Lantern in the Justice League and then uses his, you know, like uses that basically as his in uh, to, you know, commit a bunch of crimes and the heroes don't know that uh, Green Lantern is not uh, who he seems to be until the very end of the issue, the the, the shock ending basically when Batman, you know, reveals that uh, Green Lantern has been the bad guy all of this time. Um, but then he returns about two years later, issue number 19. And this time as a mad scientist, he is now messing with people's dreams. And he has created, he has has taken dreams that people have had about the heroes who are in the Justice League and taken them out of their dreams, like materialized them in this dimension and turned them evil. So now there are these like evil dream duplicates of the Justice League running around that the Justice League have to fight themselves, basically, these dream versions of themselves. And uh, from that point on, Dr. Destiny becomes this recurring bad guy whose connection is always, his motif is always crimes and whatever that have something to do with dreams. And so he appears in that uh, Justice League Annual um, where he battles Sandman. and uh, you know he's he's the villain in that story where Garrett Sanford actually meets the Justice League. Um, and whenever he shows up, he has a series of gadgets or devices or whatever that are called materiopticons. And the first time we see one, it's an actual kind of like machine. It's an actual like weird high tech device or whatever. Um, but he makes several of them over the course of his appearances, and one of the ones that he uses looks just like a red ruby. Right, that's kind of like the you know somehow he has like put all of like the dream controlling, uh you know mojo into this red stone. So once again, Damon uh, Gaiman kind of like takes that uh, appearance of that that device that thing and kind of like builds his own mythology around it and decides that the stone itself is part of uh, the tools that Morpheus uses. Um, and tells the story about, you know, like he when when he needs to get all of his stuff back, uh, having you know been freed from his imprisonment. The stone is one of the things that has somehow fallen into the hands of Doctor Destiny and made him into a Justice League worthy villain of uh, of of the heroes. And so uh, he uh, he is in the story. He is uh, he he is in the you know has that conflict basically he does the whole scene with the with the um, with the diner does take place in the comic and in the end of it uh, there is that great battle between Doctor Destiny and uh, and Morpheus in which Doctor Destiny destroys the ruby and the power all winds up flowing back into Morpheus like basically you know taking all of uh, Destiny's powers away. Um, and he is returned to Arkham Asylum, uh, where he has been kept, uh, you know, kind of like all of this time, um, and, uh, goes on after Sandman, you know, kind of like appears for a while, uh, doing the, uh, uh, you know, being a, a, goes back to being a recurring villain of the Justice League. And I think that is uh, as far as we're going to get uh, in today's episode. So we're going to come back next episode and uh, tell you some more about the other characters uh, that are kicking around the Dreams uh, universe, uh, you know, in both TV and comic book.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. I've been Steve Tasker.
1: And I'm Darren Watts.
0: Have a good night. Thanks for coming,